Well, good morning. Uh, please turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. While you're turning there, uh, Alistair Begg shares the story of a Puritan minister who preached a rather lengthy sermon on a Sunday morning. At one point, this pastor uh, caught himself saying, 17thly, uh, that was, you know, you know how the Puritans are, 17 points with 10 applications, but they didn't call them applications, they called them uses. And so that, that afternoon, his wife gently chided him by saying that while the content of the sermon was good, it was a bit long. And this pastor, he took it to heart. They had a Sunday evening service at their church, and so to encourage everyone who had come back for Sunday evening service, he said, I know I labored you this morning with all of those points, and so for your good this evening, my sermon will be pointless. I feel a little like that Puritan minister because last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 40 and we beheld the incomparable God of Israel. Yahweh truly is incomparable. Anything or anyone you could compare Him to falls so far short of Him that it makes the comparison meaningless. And last week, Isaiah 40 put on display the power and immensity and greatness of our God, and I was very enthusiastic preaching it. But I tried to cover 20 verses arranged in five points, and I'm aware that I went uh, 10 minutes over. Nobody said anything. You know, everybody who talked to me about the sermon was very supportive. But, uh, you know, I looked at the clock when I got done dismissing everybody, and I went 10 minutes over on Mother's Day to boot, right? So, um, uh, so for your good this morning, my sermon isn't going to be pointless, but it will have less points and cover less verses. Uh, let's read the text together. Uh, it's Isaiah 42, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. Uh, and this is a prophecy about a special servant God will send. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, we read, "'Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations.'" He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he established, uh, and, excuse me, until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So this is a prophecy. Uh, by God about a special servant He will send, the Messiah, uh, who the New Testament reveals to us to be Jesus of Nazareth. And my goal this morning is uh, for all of us to see who Jesus is as prophesied by Isaiah so we can appreciate the prophecies about Him, but also so we can worship Him better. God is presenting to us a Savior here, and He's giving us this morning a message of hope. But the point I want to make is that the Holy One of Israel in this passage is not just giving us hope by communicating His love and His graciousness. Uh, he's actually uh, emphasizing that our hope is to be found in a special servant that He's promised to send, and this special servant really is our only hope. And you see that in the title of the sermon, Our Only Hope. I've said it because when God's special servant prophesied in these verses came, you remember that He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. The Holy Spirit says through Peter in the book of Acts, speaking of Jesus, 
that there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. It's not that just that Jesus brings hope, it's that He's our only hope. He's our only hope for salvation, and in this passage, He's our only hope for justice being done uh, in human society. And notice in verse 4 that God's chosen servant will establish justice uh, on earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for His law. In Hebrew, when they use that uh, phrase or that word, coastlands plural, what they meant is all those nations overseas. It, it, was, used, um, it was used metaphorically in Hebrew to speak of the remotest parts of the earth and to speak of Gentile nations. And so, the idea here is that when… when, when a, I know you wouldn't normally think of that when you hear the word coastlands. But when a Hebrew speaker uses that word, what they're talking about is God presenting a Savior that is a universal Savior, right? So, this isn't just going to be a Savior for Israel. This is a Savior for all peoples. And notice again in verse 4 that word, wait. Waiting in the Old Testament, again, is closely connected to the idea of hope, putting our hope in God. But for me to preach about hope, is problematic with a contemporary English-speaking audience because of the way that we use the word hope in street language, right? Uh, when I was growing up in the public schools, you know, I'd try out for the basketball team, and while I'm waiting to see who's on the basketball team, if a friend asked me, do you think coach will choose you for the team, what did I, how would I respond? Three words, I hope so, right? I, I grew up as a Seahawk fan, and we just had the NFL draft a few weeks ago, and someone who knows I'm a Seahawk fan asked me, do you ever think the, do you think the Seahawks will ever be good again? Well, I hope so. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't have a crystal ball. I have, no, I have no control over it, but I hope so. So often we use the word hope in English to speak of a wish we have for something that's uncertain and weak. But in the Bible, we're invited to put our hope in promises of God that are rock solid. Speaking of the hope we have in God's chosen servant, the author of Hebrews says, this hope we have is an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. When we talk about the idea of biblical hope, we're talking about something that's a sure thing, something that will come to pass. God has kept all His promises in the past, and you can see a record of that in Scripture, and we believe He'll keep all His promises for the future. But there's more clarifications I have to give about hope. The Bible doesn't just proclaim hope. It challenges false hopes that we tend to get hooked by, uh, right? And it challenges us to actually invest in the true place hope is to be found. You see, hope isn't something we just passively assent to. Biblical hope is something you invest in. Uh, if you had the reputation as a wise investor, and someone came to you and said, should I buy stock in ExxonMobil or Tesla, uh, right? And if you said to them, and, and you were not being very precise with your words, if you said, oh, I'm betting on Tesla, and they said, oh, really, how much money have you invested in them? And you said, well, I haven't bought any stock in them, uh, but they're who I think will grow in value the most. Uh, what's going on there? Well, you're not actually investing in Tesla, you're just predicting that they'll do better in the future. Well, in the same way, you can believe Jesus will return. You can be predicting He'll return, but not be investing in His kingdom while you wait for His return. The Bible doesn't just tell us 
where true hope can be found. It invites us to invest in that hope. And there's a third thing we need to say also about biblical hope that we need, we need to emphasize this. The biblical hope we are called to, and you see it in the passage, God is telling us who to hope in here. The biblical uh, hope that we have is not in a philosophy or um, a moral kind of teaching or even a system of redemption. I believe, especially when we study systematic theology, there is a, a systematic way you can organize and study and, and grow from learning about the doctrine of salvation given in Scripture, but we need to emphasize whenever we talk about that hope that our hope is not in a system of redemption, it's in a redeemer, it's in a person who, redeemed, who knows us by name and went to the cross to redeem us from our sins. And so, these three clarifications, I'm aware as a pastor, are really important when we talk about hope. Hope is not just a wish in something uncertain. It's, it's uh, uh, based on the bedrock promises of God's Word. Our hope is in a person, not just a system of redemption. And biblical hope is something that whenever you see it, we're called to invest in it, not just to trust in it, but to make sacrifices for it, to invest in it. This is what Jesus was talking about when He talked about storing up treasure in heaven where uh, moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. Now, as we come to Isaiah 42, we do come to a very special portion of Isaiah that's known as one of the servant songs. In Isaiah, there are four servant songs that are poetic songs given prophetically by the Lord that speak about this chosen servant He will send that we would know of as Messiah. And the one we come to today is the very first of the four in Isaiah. And there's three things I want you to see about God's chosen servant in these four verses. Uh, first of all, it's important that He is chosen, hand-picked by God Himself, that He is gracious, and also that He's tireless. Let's look at that first point. Our hope is in someone who is chosen. Verse 1, "'Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights.'" Uh, the first word I want you to notice in verse 1 is the word behold. Uh, it's an attention-getting word. God is saying, look at this, give your attention to this. But this word actually becomes very important in interpreting these four verses because it connects with an argument God is making with Judah that goes all the way back to chapter 41, verse 21. In chapter 41, verse 21, God starts speaking about the idols, the, the false gods. In fact, He challenges the gods of those other, the, the foreign gods, the idols, to make prophecy about the future and then to bring that prophecy to pass. In fact, one of the apologetics God gives for Himself as the one true God is that He makes prophecies, and then by His own power, He brings them to pass. The false gods don't do that. And so, He, he gives this argument against the false gods, and He ends the argument in verse… let me get this right here in uh, verse 24 by saying, behold, you are nothing to those false gods. And then God takes up the subject of idolaters, the people who worship those foreign gods in verse 25, and He says at the end of verse 29, behold, all the idol worshipers are false and their works are worthless. So, what's going on here is we're actually jumping in to the middle of an argument Yahweh is making with the people of Judah, and He's contrasting uh, 
idols and idol worshipers with His chosen servant who He wants to now brag about. And the word behold at the beginning of verse uh, 1 of chapter 42, that's a transition word that continues the flow of the argument. He's transitioning to brag about His chosen servant uh, in, in contrast to those false gods. And He's saying, look, this is the one I've chosen. Maybe a good illustration would be uh, a few months ago, uh, we had the NCAA men's basketball tournament. And I know many of you in here, there was discussion around Bible studies and Thursday nights. Many of you participated in, uh, you know, pick them. Uh, you're going to fill out your bracket and, and see if you can choose the most winners. And uh, I participated in a couple of those. And I decided, you know what, I normally do so terrible because I don't follow, I like college basketball, I just don't follow it that close. And uh, so I decided, you know what, this year I'm going to invest in doing some research. I'm going to watch one of those shows where they tell you, they give you their picks before the tournament begins. So I turned on one of the sports shows, and I, it was going to be an hour long, and I got interrupted 15 minutes into it, so I only got to see them talk about one of the brackets, right? Because they split it into four regions, right? And so they gave their picks, I think, for the Western region. And, I, you know, I took some notes, and, uh, and I, I took their advice. And sure enough, uh, I did better in that bracket than the other three, right? Uh, what's going on there? Well, you have these analysts who give you their expert picks. Well, God is giving you His pick and not just a pick about a basketball tournament, He's telling you who He has chosen for the eternal well-being of your soul. Uh, who is His expert pick? Who should you hope in? Well, this chosen servant He will send. Uh, and notice that He is not just chosen, He is a, a servant who God will uphold. That is to say, God will back Him up, He will support Him in the work that He comes to do. And he also delights in him, right? The language is similar to the baptism of Jesus, where uh, God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, this person that God has chosen to send is a preeminent servant. This person he's talking about is not just another prophet or a priest. This is his chosen one, uh, the, the most preeminent of all the servants he will send, and he delights in him. Alec Motyer sums it up this way. He is the Lord's man for the job and the Lord's man for Himself. Now, notice also from verse 1, we also learn at the end of verse 1, I've put my Spirit, capital S, upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So, He will have God's Spirit, capital S, on Him, and when He comes in the power of God's Spirit, what will He do? Well, the Gentile nations are involved, right? Uh, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, that Hebrew word for nations, it's also the word they use to speak about Gentiles. You could, you could translate it, He will bring justice to the Gentiles. Uh, or to put them both together, if you wanted to cover all your bases, you could say, He will bring justice to all the Gentile nations. And that's another important point to make. Though God has chosen Israel as His special people, He's always cared about the Gentiles. In fact, His motive for choosing Israel was to bless all the nations of the earth through them. One of the reasons Jesus died sacrificially and voluntarily on the cross was so that the nations, the Gentiles, could be restored to God, and there could be a people recruited for God from every tribe and tongue and nation who would become worshipers of Him. 
Now, I will confess to you as we sort of get close to finishing verse 1 here, I've talked a lot about this chosen servant God will send as a Savior, right? Uh, And I'm saying that in part because that's how Isaiah in other passages portrays the one that God will send. Isaiah 53, He will become a guilt offering for the sins of His people. He will bring individual salvation. But notice, what is the emphasis of the passage? The emphasis of these four verses is not so much on the personal salvation He brings, it's on Him bringing justice, right? That He will bring, bring justice to the nations. Three times in these four verses, the word justice is emphasized. So, God's servant won't just save individuals from their sins. He'll fix what's broken in the world. He'll fix the injustice that is endemic to human society. When the Lord Jesus returns to set up His kingdom on earth, He will bring justice not just to Israel and for Israel, but He'll bring it for all the nations. Uh, Every four years, right, we participate in a presidential election, and uh, the last one was so ugly and divided evangelicalism that now pastors are traumatized, and we don't look forward to presidential elections anymore. But what are we doing during a presidential election? I mean, one of the the calculations we're making is we're voting for the candidate that we believe will do the best job bringing about justice, right? That's one of the things we're trying to do. Well, what's going on in this passage is God is telling us who He votes for. He's telling us who He's sending to bring about justice, to fix what's broken. He has a choice, hand-picked servant who is a kindred spirit, capital S, kindred spirit, uh, who will fix what's broken in the world. And so, our hope is in someone chosen by God. But in contrast to the justice He will bring, as we move into verses 2 and 3, notice also the hope uh, that we have in Him being gracious. Let's look at those verses again. He will not cry out or raise His voice, nor make His voice heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break, and a dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, I will confess these two verses, they don't translate well into English because even after you translate them, they bring Hebrew word pictures in that we just, we don't know what they mean. What does it mean that this chosen servant won't cry out or raise up his voice? Well, in the Hebrew way of thinking, it means he's not going to be aggressive about dominating other people and shouting other people down. He's not going to be combative, and the reason he's not going to be combative is because he's not trying to pick a fight with people. He's trying to reason with people and turn them back to God. This is so different than what you see when you turn on the TV today, right? I mean, think about those. I I can't kind of handle them, but I know other people find them entertaining. I can't tune in to those news talk shows. What do they do with the news talk shows? They bring in different guests on different sides of the spectrum, you know, like a bunch of bumblebees, and then they shake up the container and watch them go at it, right? And, and that's the whole goal is to get ratings through having people who are combative and argue with each other and shout each other down and are very witty about insulting each other, right? And if one of the people on the talk show says, well, I still hold my position, but you make a good point. They're not invited back, 
It, the, reasonable, the reasonable calm people don't get invited back because they get ratings for having verbal combat on the show. Well, when Messiah comes, he's not going to be that way. He's not going to be verbally combative. His ministry will be as unaggressive and unthreatening as he can make it. Now, let me give a clarification. What he teaches could be conceived of as threatening to people if they won't turn from the sin they love, but it, he won't be threatening in his demeanor with the people he's trying to reach. He's not going to be combative and argumentative. And that's what the… He's going to be gentle. And that's what verse 3 communicates with its word pictures. A bruised reed and a dimly burning wick, those are pictures of people who are broken and oppressed. So, when God's chosen servant comes, He's going to come to people who are hurt, people who are broken, people who are wounded, people who are victims of other people's sins, and He will bind them up. He will heal them. He will help them. God's chosen servant will be a help to people who are hurting. Psalm 34 uh, says it this way, Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In the eyes of God's chosen servant, no broken reed is worthless and no smoldering wick is too far gone. He's going to bind up the broken uh, reeds, you know, the wounded people, and heal them. He's going to fan the embers of the smoldering faith of people who uh, really are struggling. Uh, And you see this emphasized in Jesus' ministry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? When Jesus came and He encountered broken people, how did He come at them? Well, when He found broken people, He didn't crush them, right? He didn't stomp on them. When He encountered people with smoldering faith, He didn't say, look at this pathetic faith, right? That's not what He did, right? He, he loved people. He was gentle with people. Um, now, this is important. I think we can read these verses then, once we understand that He'll be gentle, we can read these verses and assume that if we're the legitimate victims of someone else's sin, that these verses apply to us. But if we're in a mess of our own making, maybe we're just on our own. And maybe that's not so bad because maybe we should get some consequences for what we did so we learn not to do it next time, right? And I think we can think that. But I don't think that's a proper way of thinking because over and over again in Scripture, we see that's not the case. Whenever Jesus ministered to people who were entangled uh, and broken because of their own sin, if they were willing to confess their sin, they received grace. Uh, And so, I would say to you, I think these verses also apply to you if some of your brokenness and some of your woundedness is of your own making and because of your own poor choices, God still intends to be gracious to you. Though, When Jesus was ministering, all who wanted grace received grace, and all who confessed their sin received mercy. Uh, nobody who came to Him looking for grace was turned away or crushed by pure justice. Um, a good example might be Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, Jesus comes to him and says, he's in the sycamore tree, Zacchaeus, get down here, and what do you expect him to say? I kind of expect Jesus to say, Zacchaeus, why did you sell your soul to the Romans for a bag of money? You betrayed your own people. For what? Money, right? But that's, is that what Jesus did? No, no, I'm wrong. See, that's not what Jesus did with him. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And Zacchaeus, who receives grace, receives mercy, who's fascinated by this teacher, uh, by this rabbi, Jesus, 
He says, uh, Lord, I repent of what I've done, and if I've defrauded anybody in the way I've collected taxes, uh, I'll make restitution. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house because this man is a child of Abraham. He receives mercy, right? Everybody who wanted grace, everybody who uh, admitted that they needed grace and sought it, received it from Jesus. Um, and that's an important, uh, important clarification. The qualification, maybe we could say it this way, the qualification for receiving grace is being pathetic and admitting you're pathetic, right? That's the qualification. It's not that you do great things for God and then uh, uh, you somehow earn some grace and a pass from Him. That's not the way it works. It's just if you're pathetic, if you've committed sin and you can admit that what you've done is evil and confess it for what it is, you'll receive grace. Now, all of this gentleness, all of this grace that's meant to be com communicated in verses 2 and 3, it's very, very important in the context of this chosen one who will bring and enforce justice on earth when His kingdom comes. It's really good news for us, and allow me to illustrate why. <clears throat> Imagine for a moment that the police department came out and said, look, wow, uh, it, it's like COVID happened and you all forgot how to drive. There's less people out on the road, but we have more accidents, we have more fatalities going on, on out there, and, and this is ridiculous. We have to have a safe community. We can't have people dying uh, out on the road, and so we're really going to put more resources into cracking down on reckless driving. So, you know those people, uh, this, I've just noticed this is happening a lot more recently, at least when I'm out driving. Have you noticed those people who the light turns red, and it's been red for like a full second before they even enter the intersection, and they just keep barreling through? Those people we're going to get them. And if the police department said that, we would all respond by saying, yeah, amen. I know that, I know that we're not like an amening church, but yes, I was, I was uh, hoping for a hearty amen out of you. Yes, amen. Uh, or the other way to say it, you know, we're in church, so we feel like we got to say amen. But part of what we really meant was, get them. Yeah, get them. Right? But then, then imagine that the police department came to us and said, and you know what else? Those stop signs they're there for a reason. And we've noticed that some of you, you, you slow down and, you know, kind of look both ways, but you do one of those, you do one of those California rolling stops, and this isn't California, this is Virginia, and you need to come to a full stop and look both ways before you move through the intersection. And if you, if you perform a rolling stop, we're going to stop you, we're going to give you a ticket. And we would all respond by saying, oh, wow, wow, you guys... We have a more law-abiding bunch than I thought. What I was anticipating was having half of you say amen, and the other half of you be like, w w rolling, rolling stops aren't that bad. Um, uh, okay, so then third, finally, imagine that they came and said, oh, and, and not only are stop sign, not only does a stop sign mean stop, uh, also those speed limits we've posted, they're there for a reason, they're there for your safety, speed kills. And so, if we're going to be really strict about enforcement, if you go just one mile an hour over the speed limit, we're going to stop you and give you a ticket. And we would all say, ah, yeah, ah. So, so, what happened there? 
what happened was, it's just a traffic illustration, but we all started out excited about justice, but then we realized if justice was applied, you know, in a really purely objective way, that uh, especially on the speed limit one, I think we're confessing that it would mean justice is coming for us, that we're in trouble. Well, that's the same way that human nature reads this servant song. We start off excited about justice, but if we would remember that the definition of the justice that will be enforced is God's law, and then we would just take an honest look at God's law, then we would see that we're in trouble. God's law says, you shall not murder. But the spirit of that law, Jesus makes this clear, the spirit of that law also covers hatred, anger, and vengeful fantasies. If you've harbored hatred and vengeful fantasies in your heart, Jesus says you've already committed murder in your heart. Jesus taught that any man who looks at a woman with sexual desire for her in his heart has already committed sexual sin with her in his heart. If you've ever taken God's name in vain and used His name or uh, the name of Jesus like a cuss word, that's blasphemy. God takes that personally. He takes it very seriously. If you've ever lied to escape the consequences of your actions, you've broken the commandment not to give false witness. Those are serious crimes before a holy God. And I only listed four of them. I'm going to stop at four just to be merciful for the sake of this sermon, all right? Um, and this is the most important dynamic that goes on in the passage that I think we need to grapple with. We all start out thrilled that God's chosen one will bring justice, but when we realize that His justice isn't just going to include bringing justice on dictators and drug dealers and human traffickers, when we realize that if we read His law, it's going to include coming after us, it becomes frightening. And that's why verses 2 and 3 are a comfort to us, uh, because we want to see justice done on earth, but our only hope for surviving the justice God is going to bring is if His justice is also mingled with grace. And so, this is important. Our hope is in someone chosen by God who will bring universal justice, but our hope is also in someone who is gracious. He's gracious to all who want to receive grace, all who admit that they need grace. And then finally, our hope is in someone who is tireless. Look at verse 4. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he's established justice in the earth. Uh, now, there's something in this verse that I think can get lost in translation, but I want you to see it. For rhetorical effect, the terms that were just used in verse 3 to describe a bruised reed and a dimly burning wick, they're repeated here and applied to Messiah. Uh, one of the Bible translations I like to use that I want to give an advertisement for is the Net Bible, uh, N-E-T, the Net Bible. You can look it up online. You can also buy a print version. What it is, is it's a Bible translation where the Bible translators who collaborated on it, they give footnotes about the various translations that could have been given, could have been rendered, and they, uh, they let you know about translational difficulties, uh, but they also give you a justification for why they translated the verse the way they did. And uh, I use the Net Bible every time I'm prepping to preach because their footnotes are so valuable. And so I'm going to quote them because I think they do the best job keeping this relationship between the verses. This is the way the Net Bible translates it. A crushed reed he will not break, a dim wick he will not extinguish. He will not grow dim 
or be crushed before establishing justice on earth, right? And, and here's the point of verse 4. God's chosen servant will be subject to the same pressures and sufferings that cause other people to be broken, that cause other people to be uh, dimly burning wicks who burn low. Uh, God's chosen servant then will not be immune to suffering. He will suffer greatly himself. However, the suffering he faces won't immobilize him, it won't break him, it won't defeat him, it won't deter him in his task. He's going to finish what he starts regardless of the suffering he faces. And you see a great illustration of this in the crucifixion, right? At any point uh, up leading up to and then during the crucifixion, Jesus could have called on 12 legions of angels to rescue him, but he didn't. And what it communicates is this, you don't have a reluctant Savior. He will finish what He started. He will return again and establish justice on earth while still mingling that justice with grace for those who want to receive grace. And notice in verse 4, this is a global justice. It is in the earth. It will not just be a justice for Israel as God's chosen people. It will be a justice for all nations. Now, I believe theologically that this justice will start by restoring people to God and giving them new hearts that willingly keep God's law. And I emphasize that because I'm concerned that the utopian visions that are very popular uh, in America right now, they skip that step. They want to ignore the God whose world we're all living in and try to bring justice between mankind, but that will never work. Most of the misery on earth is caused by people sinning against one another, and to fix that, people need to be made right with God. They need to be given new hearts that will willingly obey God's law and love others. And a day is coming when that will happen. Jesus will finish what He started. He will return, uh, and when He does, establish, uh, he, he will establish justice on earth. That's our hope. Now, having that hope that doesn't mean that we don't work for justice and advocate and vote our conscience on, on which uh, public officials we think will be the most just. Uh, we want to work in our own generation, um, and yet it also means we're not naive. As long as the hearts of mankind remain unchanged, a certain amount of injustice on earth will continue. Our only hope for universal justice is someone who is chosen by God, who is gracious to those who seek His grace, and who is tireless in implementing true justice and true peace on earth. And so, we choose to place our hope in Jesus. But even as I've encouraged you to place your hope in Jesus, I also have to exhort you, you can't truly place your hope in Jesus without incurring some risk, because to truly place your hope in Jesus, you have to invest in Him and His kingdom. Let me give you a few illustrations. If you feel discouraged about fighting sin because you're trying to take sin seriously and fight against it, but other people around you, they seem to treat it casually, they seem to indulge in it, and, and also there doesn't seem to be the inner conflict within them over it. They seem to be at peace with just indulging in it, and they even seem to kind of get away with it. There doesn't really seem to be any consequences. Well, when you choose to still take sin seriously and fight against it, 
you're investing in Jesus by pursuing the righteousness that He told His followers to pursue. Uh, you don't passively hope in Jesus. You invest hope in Him. Or another way we could talk about it, this is just very simple, is uh, giving to the Lord's work, right? Uh, and you all are very generous givers, so you don't need me to exhort you on it, but I need an illustration for the sermon. When you give uh, money to the Lord's work, you're risking losing earthly wealth because you believe that investing in His heavenly kingdom and in heavenly treasures that don't fade away is worth it, even though money comes in really handy down here, right? And that's, that's what I'm getting at with hope. You, you don't just hope in Jesus. You invest in Jesus by living out His commands. And that does mean that you have to risk something. Um, you can't really hope in Jesus without taking some risks and making some eternal investments. Now, as I turn to close, I do want to address, by way of application, what I would consider to be three groups of people in the room, if I could divide you up based on my understanding, my interpretation of these four verses. Some of you in here are bruised reeds. Uh, you're grieving the death of a loved one, or maybe you're facing health problems, or you're heartbroken by decisions that your spouse or your children are making. Um, and the invitation for you is to invest in Jesus by trusting that in the end, He will heal your wounds, and He will come through for you in the end. Now, some of you in here, others of you, you're not broken reeds. Your family is doing okay. Maybe your health is decent. Your, your finances are strong. And the invitation for you is to make sure that during this season of blessing in your life, you don't begin to place your hopes in things that are actually fragile and temporary and fade away. It's hard in a season of blessing to really be investing your hope and your trust in Jesus because there's a lot of things around you that you can, you can lean on. Uh, and so, that's the warning for you if you're in a season of blessing. Still, others of you are a bruised reed, but you would admit, yeah, the depth of that wound is partially my own making, yeah, I brought some of this brokenness on myself. This addiction, I mean, nobody held a gun to my head and made me indulge in this. I'm enslaved to something that I made choices for in the past. And the invitation to you is to confess your sin for what it is and to cry out for mercy. And, and the confidence we have in Scripture is that all who confess their sins are forgiven and cleansed. And those are the three invitations I want to give to you this morning. As we turn to close, I'm going to give us some time for prayer, and I want to give you a couple minutes of silence to do business with the Lord based on what you've heard in this passage, and then I'll close us.